Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, this is part of a series of podcasts and video documentaries on the New Zealand Wars, which also include episodes on the Northern War and the First Taranaki War. You can find them wherever you found this podcast or just search for New Zealand Wars on the RNZ website. I mihi ana te kia koutou. Big thank you to New Zealand On Air. It's late in the afternoon, April 2nd. 1864. Rewi Maniapoto reaches the southern bank of the Punyu River. He looks back to see a bedraggled group of men, women and children. They belong to many tribes, Ngai Tūhoi, Ngāti Raukawa, Waikato, Taranaki, Ngāti Haua, Ngāti Kahunuru, Te Arua, Tauranga Moana, along with Rewi's own people, Ngāti Maniapoto. There are maybe one or two hundred of them spread out through the bush, the survivors of a three-day siege against more than 1,400 British and Allied troops. Rewi's people are exhausted. They've just run five k's to escape the siege, ducking into gullies and scrambling over ridges. All of the units within the Imperial and colonial forces did their very best on those five kilometres to diminish the number of survivors that would finally make their way across the Punya River to safety. The crossing of the Punyu River marked the end of the largest and most important war between Māori and the Crown, the Waikato War. The legendary Rangatira Wiremu Tamihana Tarapipipi described it as Te Pakanganui Mo Nutirini, the Great War for New Zealand. This is the New Zealand Wars. Stories of Tainui. It's much, much more than just being a war, a fight, a battle. Part three of a series by RNZ, Aotearoa Media Collective and Great Southern Television. This is the defining conflict in New Zealand history. The stories of the people on both sides. And how this conflict reshaped New Zealand. The purpose was to consolidate the power and authority of the British Empire. My name is Mihingarangi Forbes. Through my father's Whakapapa Amgati Pawa and Ngati Maniapoto, following the Waikato War and the subsequent land confiscations, one of my iwi, Ngati Maniapoto, would provide refuge to Waikato tribes. 
But within time, Maniapoto would too become homeless. Parliament holds records of those who became landless. And in 1900, my grandmother's grandfather, Turimanu Tengaruhu, is listed alongside thousands of others. And on my mother's side, my grandfather's grandfather, who was Welsh, he signed up to fight in the Waikato War for the colonial army. But he died shortly before the fighting began. And I'm William Ray. My ancestors migrated to Aotearoa from England to join the gold rush in the mid-19th century. My mum came from Auckland and my dad came from Kawaro. But I grew up in Hamilton, Kirikiridoa, on land which was taken from Waikato Tainui by the colonial government as part of this war. So, Mihi, where do we start? Well, that's not as obvious as you might think. I asked Ngāti Maniapoto historian Kafia Murahi that question, and he took us all the way back to the 15th century, when the Pope authorised Portugal and Spain to colonise the New World. The intent was to Christianise the world. So those who were outside of the faith, their resources were basically to be put up for grabs on the open market. Kafia has a point there. I mean, this story has really deep roots, but... I think we might need to narrow the focus a little bit. Yeah. To save some time, let's skip ahead a few hundred years to the early 1850s. The Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840. There was a bit of a honeymoon period after that. Yeah, but still obviously a lot of tension between Māori and the new settlers. Yeah, there were small wars in Wairo and the Hutt Valley, and a more significant war up north which ended at Ruapekapeka. And all this is being pushed along by a huge boost in the Pākehā population. It went from about 2,000 when the treaty was signed to about 22,000 in the early 1850s to roughly 50,000 by the end of that decade. Yeah, it's massive. Most were living in a handful of settlements, places like Auckland and Whanganui, Wellington and Nelson. Feeding all these Pākehā was big business for Māori, particularly in Waikato, the most fertile and productive part of the country. Here's New Zealand war historian Dr Vincent O'Malley, author of The Great War for New Zealand, Waikato, 1800-2000. to One Auckland newspaper in the 1840s commented that the settlers of Auckland would have starved were it not for produce that Māori provided them, so... It's a very productive trade, and so they have this kind of symbiotic relationship with the settlement of Auckland. When settlers toured Waikato, they were astonished at just how wealthy Māori were becoming thanks to this trade. Like, here's how Lady Mary Martin described her visit in 1852. For miles, we saw one great wheat field. The blade was just showing of a vivid green, and all along the way on either side were wild peach trees in full blossom. Carts were driven to and from the mill by their native owners. The women sat under the trees sewing flower bags. Fat, healthy children and babies swarmed around. But a lot of settlers weren't happy with this situation. Many had been drawn to this country by the glossy brochures of the New Zealand Company, which was a private corporation set up in Britain to colonise Aotearoa back in the 1830s and 40s. The company had produced leaflets and books which painted New Zealand as like a new Garden of Eden. Very near to Australia, 
There is a country which all testimony concurs in describing as the fittest country in the world for colonization, as the most beautiful country with the finest climate and the most productive soil. I mean New Zealand. But this was just all propaganda, right? Yeah, pretty much. And the colonists arrived to find there wasn't enough land to go around and no land meant no work, no income. Wars had already broken out over disputed land sales in Wairo and the Hutt Valley. Vincent O'Malley says things were getting tense. Especially in a district like Waikato, uh, which contains some of the most valuable lands in the country, so 30 or 40 miles from downtown Auckland, you've got these incredibly value, valuable lands that many settlers are coveting but can't get access to. And we're not just talking about small-time farmers looking for a couple of acres. No, there were also these hugely rich speculators, people like Thomas Russell, the founder of BNZ Bank. Russell wanted to buy up huge tracts from Māori on the cheap, then sell it on to other colonists at a massive profit. And men like Russell were getting more and more influence in Aotearoa. Yeah, particularly after 1852. In 1852, New Zealand had had a new constitution introduced by the British Parliament that established the forerunner to today's parliament. It met for the first time in Auckland in 1854. There were no Māori members in that parliament. This is at a time when Māori are the majority of the population in Aotearoa. Most Māori men couldn't vote for that parliament. So basically you've got a, a new government established that's entirely hostile to Māori interests. So the formation of parliament created an issue, an imbalance of power in a sense. Pākehā were unified under the leadership of that parliament and the governor, whereas Māori leadership worked differently. Decisions are made in the interest of your clan, your hapu, your whānau, and the land that you have responsibility for. It's still like that today, just as it was in 1858, when New Zealand reached another crucial tipping point. Demographics are starting to shift. By 1858, the European population outnumbers Māori for the first time across the country. And so you start to see this kind of period when Europeans feel confident enough to be able to assert their presumed racial dominance over Māori. It seemed like control was slipping away from Māori and into the hands of Pākehā. And so they looked around for, um, you know, what could they do about that? And one of the... um, things that was decided was that if, if the Crown won't, won't allow us to sit in their parliament, then we need some kind of mechanism to come together ourselves. Throughout the 1850s, a new movement was underway. Hui were held, an idea of kotahitanga, a single voice, was growing. Yeah, I heard a bit about this when I was out on the road doing the interviews for this story. Way back in 1853, Martine Te Fifi and Tamihana Paraha travelled the country promoting the idea and searching for a Māori monarch. In 1856, Iwikau Te Hiauhiau of Ngāti Tu convened a meeting near Taupo at Pukawa. This hui is famous, a pivotal political moment in our history. It was here that Te Hiauhiau proposed Pōtatau Te Whiruwhiru as king. And Pōtato had actually been already asked to become the king multiple times, right? Yeah, he had always refused, but at this hui he accepted the role. Two years later in 1858, Pōtato Te Whiru was anointed by Wiramu Tarapipipi Tamihana, known as the kingmaker. 
I mean, no one was there counting heads, but you can imagine there must have been just tons of people at this event. Even to this day, thousands of people spend a week in Ngārua Wahia to mark this very occasion. It was the formal establishment of the Kingitanga, the Māori King Movement. Here's Rahui Papa of Waikato Tainui. He's the guy who sits at number one on the paipai, an orator, a negotiator and pretty much recognised authority on reo, tikanga and history for Waikato. The idea was for the king to be able to interface directly with the queen because they felt that that's where the the treaty relationship resided on a mana to mana uh, type of level. And it was supposed to be with God as the ridgepole and the Māori king on one, the rafters on one side and the, and the Pākehā queen uh, with the rafters on the other side. It was supposed to be a harmonious relationship. It wasn't designed to be an uh, adversarial relationship between Māori uh, and Victoria. So, like Rahui was saying there, it's not as if Waikato Māori were declaring independence from Queen Victoria. You know, it's not like Rob Stark and Game of Thrones going, you know, I'm now the King of the North. No, the King was there to represent Māori interests in Aotearoa, just like the settler parliament represented Pākehā interests. It's more of a balancing act. So, the first Māori King, Pōtato, what do we know about what he was like? Didn't know him personally, but they say he was a warrior, leader of Waikato Iwi, very significant leader. Like, Queen Victoria knew about him by reputation as the greatest rangatira of New Zealand, and he was a direct descendant of both captains of the Tainui and Te Arawa Waka. But by this point, when he becomes the king, he's actually quite an elderly man, like in his mid-80s. Mm, he died just two years after his coronation, and the crown passed to his son, Matu Taira, who became Kingi Tafiao. So just a warning for our listeners, a lot of the Māori people in this story have multiple names. Māori often change their names after an event in their lives or to remember history. And Kingi Tafiao is just a classic example of this, right? Absolutely. At different times of his life, he carried many names. Some were Tukaroto, Matutaira, Potetau, Te Whirofiro, but became Kingi Tafiao. He was actually baptised uh, in three separate religions, in the Methodist, in the Anglican and in the Catholic churches. And so uh, it was Burroughs that uh, gave him his name, Matutaira or Methuselah, uh, in the Bible. Uh, and so he was brought up with the Christian teachings. He was brought up listening and hearing the Bible. He was also brought up in the old Wānanga and could see some correlation and some um, real integration. And so that's how he led his life, really, uh, with Christian principles, but with the principles of his forebears uh, as well. He was knowledgeable in whakapapa. He was knowledgeable uh, in uh, recording mission statements and tinoranga tiratanga statements in his time and that's one of the things that he was renowned for was his type of Shakespearean way uh, of uh, telling his people that here are some life lessons and some uh, guiding principles for you to live by. Uh, He was a gentle uh, type guy so much so that by the time his father passed away uh, there was an underlying uh, sort of air uh, that he would be too weak 
to take the mantle of the Kingitanga. And actually, well, there were uh, some quarters that were suggesting that his sister, uh, Tipaya, uh, would uh, take the uh, mantle. Um, but uh, according to um, the principles of the establishment of the Kingitanga, it had to go to uh, the male heir. You know, Rahui talks about Kingi Tafiao being involved in Christianity. And I've heard a phrase used uh, often while my, making this documentary. People say that Kingi Tafiao spent lots of time in the Wairua. And I think he must have been a really spiritual person. Because Wairua is like your spirit or your soul. Yeah, it's different from Christianity. It's, uh, you know, a connection to the past and to the present and, and seeing things. So, Kingi Tafiao's father, Pōtātoti Whirofiro, had forged a strong alliance with Pākehā, and Tafiao was keen to maintain that relationship. But almost immediately, there's this huge problem he has to deal with. In 1860, the Kingitanga faced a full-blown military crisis. The First Taranaki War. We've talked about this war in our previous documentary on the stories of Waitara. If you want to get into that story more, you can. Watch the documentary and listen to the podcast. We'll have links on the RNZ website, or you can search it on any of our podcast apps. Yeah, but we need to know a little bit about this war for this story, so maybe we should condense this massive, spiralling, really complex war into a few (laughs) sentences. Well, I will do my best. So a few years earlier, Taranaki settlers got into a dispute with Māori over the ownership of a block of land in Waitara, near New Plymouth. And this kind of thing was happening all the time in the 1840s and 50s. All the time. There are similar problems with dodgy land sales in the Hutt Valley and around Nelson. And notably, these are all New Zealand company settlements. That's exactly right. Yes, in Taranaki, the issue was that settlers had bought land from one individual without consent from other owners. I mean, if you wanted to give an example, this is kind of like if you had a family farm which belonged to your great-great-grandfather and then one of your cousins sold off part of it without asking the rest of the family's permission. No doubt it still happens today. But exactly, and add to that that there's a family hierarchy and the highest ranking rangatira was a guy called Widamu Kingi. Yeah, and Widamu Kingi refused to let the settlers take this land and it all spirals into a series of wars. So how does Kingitanga come into this? Well, one of the main missions of Kingitanga was to resist settler pressure for land. They felt they needed to support Wiramu Kingi as part of that mission. There were also whakapapa links and alliances between Waikato and Taranaki tribes. But there were different ideas about how to deliver that support. Some wanted to push for a political solution. Others thought the Kingitanga should go fight the crown directly. Yeah, there are two figures within Kingitanga who often get singled out to illustrate these sort of two different points of view, Wirimu Tamihana and Rewi Maniapoto. OK, first let's talk about Rewi. Ngāti Maniapoto historian Kafia Murahi is a recognised voice on Orako. He's also a descendant of Chief Rewi Maniapoto, or as we affectionately know him in Maniapoto, Manga. He was definitely different. Two things, um, I think, which contributed to his uniqueness. One was his Pākehā education at Te Kōpua Missionary School. 
he could begin to think, rationalise things from a, a Pākehā perspective because he was taught. And on the other side, of course, was his um, Ngāti Paratakawa uh, matuas, who have a history of being involved in peacekeeping for the tribe. At the age of 14, he had already been blooded in battle. He grew up in a time when there was a lot of war. His father and his grandfather were involved in many, many campaigns. So he wasn't a person that was a politician by trade. Rewi Maniapoto was born in 1807 at Kihikihi, that's near Te Awamutu. Colonists often accused him of being bloodthirsty or warlike, but Kafia Muraki reckons Rewi was just a realist. Like, from a young age, he'd watched the Crown go to war against Māori time and again, you know, first in the north against Honeheke and Turuki Kawati in 1845, then there's the clash in the south with Te Raupara in 1846, and now we've got a war in the west with Wirimukingi. Yeah, so looking at all these conflicts... Rewi figured war between Kingitanga and the Pākehā settlers was inevitable. But others in Kingitanga were still hoping for a political solution, particularly Wurimu Tamihana, the kingmaker, the man who anointed Pōtato as the first Māori king. At that time, obviously, Wurimu Tamihana was quite an influential man, being the one who crowned uh, the king, um, being a Christian, a devout Christian man of the Bible, peacemaker, a strategist, a man of great courage and great dignity and mana. But Kafia says we need to remember while Rewi Maniapoto and Wirimu Tamihana had disagreements, they both were working towards the same goal. There were differences of views between Manga and his contemporaries and sometimes differences of views with um, Wirimu Tamihana, but that in no way did that complicate or undermine the commitment to the concept and notion of mana Māori motuhake. The future of Aotearoa balanced on a knife edge. Members of the settler government were furious after Rewi and others travelled to Taranaki to fight alongside Wirimu Kingi. Wirimu Tamihana's efforts at peace talks were repeatedly rebuffed by colonial officials. Tamihana's own son disobeyed his father and went to join the fighting. Governor Gore Brown was drawing up plans for an invasion of Waikato, conscripting local colonists, mustering troops from all over the empire. Right at this moment, a ship arrived in Auckland Harbour carrying someone who might have solved everything. He was famous both for his reputation as a humanitarian and his skill as a leader, a fluent speaker of te reo Māori who'd written books on Māori religion, culture, language. His name was Governor George Gray. Do you think you're being too generous to Governor George Gray? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. Humanitarian? I, I mean, looking, looking back... 
absolutely, his reputation as a humanitarian has not um, stood the test of time well. But I think you have to remember that at this time, he'd had a really successful first governorship mm. and he was actually quite well liked by a lot of Māori and Pākehā and had this reputation as being like a radical progressive. These days, many people see George Grey as a leading villain of colonisation, so it can be a bit jarring to hear him described as progressive or humanitarian. But we're talking about his reputation during his first term as governor in the 1840s and 50s, not how he's viewed today. Yeah, and I mean, there were more than a few Māori back in the 1840s and 50s who didn't think of Grey as a supporter of Indigenous rights. Like for one thing, in his first term, he had captured and illegally imprisoned the Ngāti Tōa Rangatira Te Raupara, which is something which scandalised Māori all over the country. But Grey still had a good reputation among most Waikato Māori, or at least a better reputation than other colonial leaders. Yeah, in that first governorship, he had helped build hospitals and schools for Waikato Māori to use. He also helped them get loans to build up their agricultural industry. And he spent lots of time talking to Māori leaders, learning their language, gathering stories and waiata. He later published books about Māori culture. Yeah, although these days he'd be probably accused of plagiarism because mm. he never gave credit to his sources. Tikataho and the loans Grey organised for Māori could be seen as a way of controlling them. Again, definitely not an Indigenous rights supporter by today's standards. But at the time, many Waikato leaders saw Grey as an ally. Aye. In 1845, Hone Heke had asked Port Tatau Te to join his war against the British by invading Auckland. And Te Whirofiro refused, saying, Kia tupato ki te rimu o taku kākahu. Beware the hem of my cloak. Which makes Auckland tapu because it comes into contact with him. Vincent O'Malley says that was a pledge of support for settlers. What he's saying is that anybody who attacks Auckland attacks Te Whirofiro, the great the great Waikato Tainui chief. So, you know, that that's the ultimate defence really for that settlement. At any point, really prior to the 1860s, had Tainui had the slightest inclination to do so, they could have obliterated the settlement of Auckland. They do the very reverse, that they vow to defend it. They moved there en masse to defend the Europeans of Auckland. And like we said earlier, this was a mutually beneficial situation. Waikato Māori were getting rich selling food to the settlers. It was in their interest to keep those settlers safe. So in that first term as governor, Gray made a big effort to build up this alliance with Waikato Māori. Ngāti Naho historian Brad Totorewa says the relationship between Grey and Te Whirofiro became so close that he sent his own son, Matutaira Tafio to live with Governor Grey during his first governorship. Yeah, and just so we can put people in time, this is back in the 1840s, early 50s. Yeah, and don't forget, Tafio, who would later become king, was a teenager at the time. There was an incident that took place where Matutaira stole from his father and... Um, his father pursued him, actually, to discipline him. And Matutaira hid in, in, the, in the kauta. Because the Whirofiro was a tapu, he couldn't enter into the kauta. So what did Brad mean when he said Matutaira was hiding from his dad in the kauta? Nōku inei whakaro. So these are just my thoughts on it. The kauta is a kitchen. Um, I think that because Te Whirofiro was a high chief and tapu, he was unable to enter a place where food was prepared, which gave Tafio a really good hiding place. Ah, oh, kapai. OK, let's go back to Brad. And so when he found his opportunity, Tafio Matutaira dashed out, and he ended up with Governor Grey of Island for a week. When he returned with Governor Grey, Te Whirofiro 
and um, Governor Gray decided to banish him for six months. And so Tafiao had to go and stay with Governor Gray for six months as a young man. And so they built, he was active in that relationship. Years later, Governor Gray made his way down from Auckland to meet with that boy who was now Kingi Tafio. The iwi, I think, would have had high hopes for a good outcome. Here's Rahui Papa. Gore Brown uh, in the Taranaki conflict was looked on as a huge villain in the eyes of the majority of Māoridom. Uh, and so the returning of Grey uh, was something that they actually celebrated. There was a whole lot of hope. There was a hope that uh, Governor Gray would be his usual uh, advocate self, that he would be able to uh, rekindle some of those relationships. But this George Gray who landed back in New Zealand in 1861 for his second governorship, he was a different man from the one Waikato Māori remembered. Here's Vincent O'Malley again. Gray, by the time he arrives in New Zealand for a second governorship, has recently separated from his wife. He's basically an opium addict, and he, he finds that the old tricks that he employed in the 1840s, what his critics called the, the, the flour and sugar policy, no longer works, and the context has changed dramatically. He, in the 1840s, he didn't have a Māori King movement that, that he was required to deal with. And... Gray was a not natural autocrat, so he wasn't prepared to engage with the Kingitanga in a way that treated them as treaty partners. He, he saw it as a threat. And a lot of people wondered whether his personal challenges, the circumstances of his own life, was, was starting to influence or cloud his, his, his judgment and his decision-making at this time. Also, and we've just been talking about this, but George Gray was famous in his day as a radical supporter of Indigenous rights, but he wouldn't be considered an ally of Indigenous people by today's standards, not by a long shot. No, there are, there are names <laughs> that they call him. Yeah, his support was based on an assumption that Indigenous people could be assimilated into British society. You know, Māori and other Indigenous peoples, in, in his vision, would become essentially brown Europeans, their own culture, their own civilization would, would be eliminated. And that was seen at the time by Europeans as something that was progressive, supposedly raising up these indigenous peoples. In a way, he, he engaged with them and, and learned about them in order to destroy them. Gray didn't waste any time showing his hostility to Kingitanga. Brad Totorewa says there's one famous meeting he had with Tarapipipi, that's Wirimu Tamihana's original Māori name. Tarapipipi asks Governor Gray, do you still oppose the King movement? To which Governor Gray responded by saying, I will not fight against him with my sword but rather I will dig around him until he falls of his own accord. 
For Wiremu Tamihana, the meaning of that was clear. Governor Gray would oppose the Kingitanga. He might not launch a war straight away, but it was only a matter of time. One of his first acts is to order the construction of the Great South Road all the way from Auckland to the Waikato River so that troops can mount an overland invasion of the Waikato. Also to order armour-plated steamers that can patrol the Waikato River. Waikato Māori go to Auckland to plead with Gray not to introduce steamers on their river. And Gray says that um, as a result of their rudeness in asking him this, he'll put two there rather than just one. So he's, he's, in a way, he's going out of his way to inflame the situation rather than to provide reassurance for anybody. We're going to end this episode with a story the people of Tainui tell about a final meeting between Pōtātou Te Whirowhero, the first Māori king, and Governor George Grey. This story, I think, is fantastic, and I think it really spells out the relationship between Grey and the Kingitanga going into the war, so I think it's a fantastic um, way to sort of end this episode. The issue with it is... It's like all things. It's like not recorded in the history books. You know, if you can't um, attribute it to something, then did it even happen? Yeah people of Waikato Tainui say it does and every pokai it's talked about and it's in the waiata mm. and it's in the haka and it's in the karaki and things like that so it's very much a story which is true yeah. to a- them. And what we're talking about just so the listeners understand is Pōtato Te Whero Whero and Governor Gray. They sort of have this final clash but the issue is that Gray leaves New Zealand before Pōtato becomes the first Māori king and Pōtato dies before Grey gets back. It's really hard to see how you can have a conversation where Grey's addressing him as the king in person. Quite possibly it could have been in his first term. Yeah. Or it could have been a conversation between Governor Grey and Tāwhio and it just got kind of lost in because, translation. Because George Grey would absolutely have known that Portato was very likely to be the leading candidate it's to become the, the Māori king. the very reason he asked him to come to Auckland to protect the, pe- the settlers of Auckland. He knew it because he knew he had such mana that Ngāpuhi wouldn't come mm. south. And anyway, like, sort of the absolute minute details of exactly how this conversation happens between Grey and a leading figure in Kingitanga, whether it's Pōtato, whether it's Tāwhiao, whether it's maybe a bunch of different leaders, maybe mm. it's letters exchanged back and forth, maybe, like you say, it happens in his first governorship. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what the story sort of... Yeah. illustrates about the relationship, right? Yeah, so whether it's corded or tukuiho or whatever. So, look, all those caveats aside, here's that story about the final meeting between George Grey and Pōtātou Te Whirowhiro, as told by Brad Tōtorewa. Old man, says Governor Grey, do away with your kingship or I shall wage war against you. And, and Te Whirowhiro's response was, I can't do that, Grey. For this king movement does not belong to me, belongs to all the chiefs of Aotearoa. I'll wage war against you for seven years or more, says Grey, until you are no more. And then Portato says, and I will resist you. I will resist you for eight years, for nine years or more, you see, we won't go away. 
And then Governor Gray's response was, Old man, I have a cow. I have a cow with extensive progeny. When I release my cows into your land, it will drink of all your waterways until it's all dried up. Old man, how will you survive? What will you eat? Says Governor Gray. The old man started to name native plants. The para will consume the para, the mamaku. Will be sustained by the fruits of our forests. And then Governor Gray says to him, When all that food is gone, old man, what will you eat then? Tefirofero looked into his eyes, staring at him, and says, You, I'll eat you. And two years later, a couple of years later, Governor Gray opens up his gates to his farm and allows 1,400 cows to come through into Waikato to invade Waikato. The hopes of finding a settlement were done. An ultimatum was laid down. If Gray opened up his gates and let those 1,400 soldiers across the Mangatawhiri stream, It'd mean war. In the next episode, the invasion begins. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the biggest thing you can do to help more people find this show. Make sure it's a five-star rating. Um, you could also just tell a friend about us or post a link to the podcast on social media. That helps tons too. You can find heaps of other awesome podcasts on the RNZ website, including lots more podcasts about New Zealand history. Yeah, I'm just going to sneak in here and um, take a chance to plug my there. own show. Yeah, um, Black Sheep, you remember Thomas Russell, the founder of BNZ, who pushed for war in Waikato? Well, we have a whole episode on him about Black Sheep. We also have an episode about George Gray, so you can hear more about him there. New Zealand Wars, The Stories of Tainui is a co-production by RNZ, Aotearoa Media Collective and Great Southern Television. This podcast is presented and produced by me, Mihingarangi Forbes. And by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is William Saunders. Our voice actors were Megan Whelan and Duncan Smith. We also had help from RNZ's Shannon Honui-Thompson and Justin Gregory. And from Annabelle Lee Mather, Mahanga Pihama and Cameron Bennett. This series is funded by New Zealand on air in Mihiana Tingako Kyokuto. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.